Hello and welcome to Netflix, your weekly guide on what to binge this week. I'm Helen Daly. And I'm Helen Kelly. Together we're the two Helens. Consider us your go-to girls. Your go-to Helens. For everything you need to know on the latest Netflix releases. This week we'll be discussing the documentary that has taken the world by storm. Yes, it's Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. The harrowing series looks at Ted's life from his college years until his death in 1989. During the documentary, we hear from people directly involved in the case and even someone who had escaped from Ted's grasp. It is incredibly chilling as details from the murders Ted committed are revealed. Since it dropped on Netflix, viewers have been left with a lot of questions. And to find out more about the killer, I spoke to Stephen Michaud, the man who interviewed Ted and appeared in the documentary. Stay tuned to find out more. So HK, Conversations with a Killer is very different to the shows we've previously covered on Netflix. What do you think of it? I was very intrigued by this. Even before it dropped on Netflix, there was a lot of buzz and a lot of talk about the documentary, so of course I wanted to watch it. But I have to say, I wasn't prepared for what I watched. I found parts of the documentary, particularly those when Ted was speaking about his crimes, incredibly harrowing. I had to take a break between each episode. It's certainly a lot to take in. What did you think of it? Yeah, I think I agree. I struggled to listen to the way he could so easily disassociate himself from the crimes when he was speaking in the third person. I went into the documentary after the whole Twitter storm of people finding Ted Bundy attractive, which, by the way, I found absolutely repulsive. But in terms of the documentary, I found it fascinating, and this was someone that I wasn't completely aware of, and to hear the trail of his crimes was both harrowing and a credit to the US police force that they caught him. For some background, Conversations with a Killer dropped on Netflix 30 years after Ted was executed. He was a notorious serial killer, and shortly before his death, he confessed to murdering 30 women, although the total is believed to be much higher. The series is based on the book The Only Living Witness by Stephen Michaud and Hugh Ainsworth and features hours of audio interviews with Ted while he was on death row in 1990. After watching the documentary, I've spoken to Stephen to find out more about what it was like meeting Ted and interviewing him about the murders he committed. The first time you saw him face to face, when you went in to speak to him, what was the first thing you noticed about him that maybe stood out? Ted and I met most of the time in a small office right in the middle of the prison. I would go in there first, and then he would be brought in in chains and handcuffs, uh, wearing a peach-colored t-shirt, which was emblematic of being on death row. Mm. Uh, There was a table, two chairs, and an ashtray, and the room was surrounded on three sides by windows, so guards could look in on us uh, as they wished. I recall the first time I was waiting there for him, he came clanking in with a guard on, on each side. Um, he had lost a considerable amount of weight uh, since his last trial. Um, he had uh, a kind of furtive look, um, and he seemed exhausted, he seemed tired, his skin looked bad, um, and he had trouble concentrating as if he had something very important on his mind. I didn't think I should ask him what that was at the first moment, but he, he, he certainly was not uh, composed, put it that way. Okay, and when you got to sit and speak to him, was there anything that was separating you? Um, how close were you allowed to sit near him? There was nothing separating us. We were just across each other, from each other at a table. Okay. Uh, 
with two chairs. That was it was not a. It, I think you're thinking about those those plastic barriers that that a lot of prisons have. Um, and at that time, Florida State Prison uh, did not uh, did not have those. So we just we just sat. Um, you know, I could reach out and touch him, uh, and he could touch me. And you say in the documentary that when you were chatting to him, he took the recorder um, and cradled it. Did that lead to any of the interviews being muffled or you losing audio, or did it make it hard to go back and work out what he said? No, no. Uh, he was doing it, I think, because it was, it was, he was going to take me somewhere intimate. Uh, and so it was a uh, a gesture of, 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 of actually protecting, I guess, the tape recorder. Um, it, uh, it it was a reflexive gesture, I think, is what I'm trying to say here. And, but no, he was very clear. He spoke right into the microphone, and uh, when he did that, that was some of the best uh, best sound that I got in the six months that I saw him. Some of those tapes were very difficult to hear because of all the clanging of all the doors mm. and again and all the, the sirens and alarms that go off inside a prison. So prisons are very, very loud. Did anything ever interrupt your interviews with him? Did anyone ever come in and say, we need to cut this short or he needs to leave now? Or were you just allowed to sit and interview for him for like as long as he was happy to chat or were you restricted to anything? Well, the way it worked is I would have to call the prison in advance, days and sometimes weeks in advance, to make an appointment to see him. I was living in Texas, and the prison was in northern Florida. So I would, I would, you know, speak to the prison and say I'd like to come, you know, next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Typically, the answer would be, well, we can't give you three full days. Uh, you can see him Monday morning, and you can see him Tuesday afternoon, uh, and, and you can get an hour in on Wednesday, something like that. Okay. Often, when I got there, uh, they had changed that around. Something might have occurred. Uh, Ted might have gotten in trouble for something, or there was some shortage of officers to take people around. There's a zillion things that could go wrong. But once I got into the office and locked in with him, uh, there was never that was never interrupted. The only time I ever was interrupted was to go get him his lunch. That's it. Um, on the topic of his lunch, did he eat in front of you? Were you allowed to sit and like kind of share a meal together, or was he told he had to like leave for his lunch and then you had to go? Uh, he, when he was with me, uh, either his lunch would be brought to him on a, on a metal tray. Uh, by one of the trustees, or uh, sometimes I, when I I would go get him his lunch at the uh, uh, at the uh, 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 little prison store that uh, they they would sell small items of, of uh, uh, food and that, and that or cigarettes or something like that. Uh, I I usually passed on lunch because my I was nervous enough that I wasn't certain I could keep my lunch down if I started eating in there. So I, I just, I, I, I don't think I ever did eat lunch with him. As a matter of fact, like now that I, if I can recall correctly, um, it was a really tense time, and food 
really didn't cross my mind um, while I was in there. And you mentioned that sometimes you would turn up and something like there might not have been enough guards, or um, yeah. there might not something might have gone wrong before you got to the prison. Was there ever a time you turned mm-hmm. up and Ted just flat out refused to speak to you? No, okay. no. A uh, couple of times uh, he had clearly co- uh, consumed some uh, some sort of substance. Uh, because he would be, be, be goofy, or, or he might be uh, lethargic, uh, sleepy, or, or alternatively uh, agitated. Mm. And I, you know, he had, he had the usual access to restricted substances that, that you find in all prisons. Um, so I, I never really was quite sure which, you know, which version of Ted I was going to get. And when he spoke to you and kind of told his story, was there like a time when you thought, like got the sense of him that maybe there were more crimes or more to his story that he didn't want to give away or something about him that he wanted to protect? Like even though he was willing to sit and chat to you, there were some parts of his life that he just wasn't going to open up about. Well, he was pretty careful not to ever say in the first person, mm. I did this or I did that. I, you know, he used that the third person uh, uh, speculative uh, uh, approach that uh, was the way I got him to start talking. And that he, you know, that he could, you know, he he could talk about things, but it was, you know, he, he would he would not talk, uh, fall into the first person. Although he did a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the stuff he tended to avoid uh, were the cases. Uh, he, he would not discuss any of the cases of the young, of young girls. He would not go near that. Yeah. Um, didn't want to talk. Didn't want to talk. And I guess he was embarrassed by those because he killed a couple of twelve-year-olds. Um, and he was cautious on some of the cases where a split might have gotten into trouble. That would be cases where there were a lot of witnesses or he may have left something somewhere uh, where there was a, there was a possibility that, that what he said could lead to, to evidence against him. Um, so, yeah, there, there were things that he would not discuss. There's no doubt. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot that he did discuss, of course. And did you ever think at any point when, like, maybe he was talking about certain aspects of his life that you thought he's making this up he's not giving us the real story or he's omitting a detail about this um, and he's like filling it in with what he wants us to believe that happened or do you think he was truly honest when he spoke to you well that's hard to judge uh, because you don't have you know he's the only living witness that's why we have the name of the book Um, so yeah, I, that was something that that, uh, that that I thought about a great deal, um, and I, there were some precautions I could take against that I I could make him go through uh, the same thing two or three times and see if it, he told the same story every time, mm-hmm. and he, he he always did, it, uh, and usually liars have trouble remembering their lies. Um, after it was all, uh, I was done with him. We took the tapes to a number of, of uh, forensic psychiatrists 
leading us. And the the um, the, the the overall impression that we got from them and, and that we got ourselves is that Ted did sort of soften some of the um, some of the stuff because it was actually too horrible to remember or too horrible to admit to. So uh, and he was very. Um, rape, for instance, was often described as uh, satisfying that part of him, uh, and, and then moving on. Um, and again, the you know, the younger younger victims, he, he he did not want to talk about at all. Um, so yeah, he did. You know, I think he shaded the truth in some, in some areas. Um, but on the other hand, it was pretty clear that. Two things were clear. One was that Bundy had never talked to anybody, uh, prisoner or anybody, about any of that stuff. In fact, he said that on two or three occasions. And uh, an ally to that is that he really wanted to talk about it uh, for several reasons. One was that he was, he was kind of proud of what he had done. He thought he was a really good killer. Um, and he, uh, it was, you know, it was what he did best in the world, uh, and he was a little boastful about it, actually. Um, and he would compare himself with other well-known serial killers, and and you know, and critique their, you know, their modus operandi, etc. Um, but more importantly, I think he wanted to talk about it because he didn't understand exactly uh, what it was that made him do it, and. He wanted to talk to somebody um, about what those possibilities would be, uh, and that took up, that that took up actually a good deal of our time. And I can tell you that it was his opinion that the controlling forces in his life were mostly environmental. That he he felt that he had some sort of predisposition to sexual violence, and he didn't know where that came from. But he knew what agitated him, and what what led him to to to, to do the killings, and it had mostly to do with uh, uh, modern society. He thought that modern society was too free. Uh, it was guys like him who who had trouble resisting their darker sides were bombarded with images of you know using women's bodies to sell things. And it and pornography, uh, but not pornography uh, as an inspiration, but pornography uh, as a way to kind of, of of validate, if you will, what he was feeling, what he wanted to do. And at one point, he posited that he said, you know, if you took this person and raised him in a really restrictive society, like say. Uh, uh, Soviet Russia or perhaps Victorian England, he might have turned out to be a demon stamp collector instead of a serial killer. So he thought about that a lot um, and had no firm conclusions. He was—he really wondered about it. And when he spoke to you, you said at times he was like quite boastful. Is there, was there anything yeah. he said to you that really terrified you and think, I don't want to do this anymore, I want to get up and leave? minutes um, I, yeah, the, once we got really into it uh, the preliminaries we were with and, uh, and we were talking 
hearing on you know climatology. I mean, it was it. You know, he he didn't get excited. Um, he didn't. He was very clinical most of the time. Um, uh, and although I could tell that that he was getting a lot of pleasure out of retelling these stories, um, he didn't. He didn't betray because it didn't have any real guilt or uh, or remorse for anything. Uh, he sometimes would laugh and was amazed at what he got away with, and you know would be telling like adventure stories if it would. But, but uh, the the horror of what he did um, meant nothing to him, and, and neither did his victims. His victims were were. Um, uh, had very little concrete reality to him, and in, in fact, he he told me on certain occasions that uh, he spent as little time as possible talking to them, or inter, you know, uh, having any kind of conversational interchange with them before he, as he said, incapacitated them because he didn't want them uh, to become human beings. He wanted them to be um, uh, almost. Uh, 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 I would uh, a just a simple, really a um, um, a, a a thing. Um, he went so tell me that on several occasions he would grow uh, irritated and surprised that there'd be a lot of uh, a lot of upset in the community and police activity in the aftermath of one of his abductions, and he it it he, it, it annoyed him because. Uh, it reduced his his chances of getting another victim, and he didn't understand why one one or two girls going missing made such a you know had such a, an impact on the community. He didn't understand it. That's I I honestly don't know how you managed to stay in there. Just what you're saying to me now just sounds so chilling. Um, yeah, it was chilling. It was uh, uh, I lost a lot of weight <laughs> during that time. It's just unbelievable to hear like the fact that he just that he got quite angry that people were making such an uproar that's just so yeah. shocking to hear to hear like i just can't fathom it really um on well you heard his, you heard his voice on the series on the yeah. did, did you notice how, how little after often was in his voice when he's talking about this stuff he just um, so relaxed, like he's just retelling like a bedtime story or something. He doesn't seem, I don't right. feel like there's yeah. any feeling from him. No. No, only feelings that you, that you get from guys like that are the ones that they manufacture. Um, they're, you know, in, inside, they're, they're soulless. And uh, there's one theory that one of the reasons they kill is that, is that they have nothing inside themselves and they're trying they're trying somehow to incorporate a real human into themselves, devouring them, if you will. Mm. Um, and that that's one of the, the that's one of the, uh, the sources of their necrophilia. Now that's weird. It's just so scary to like. I just yeah. the the whole way he behaves about it all. But another thing yeah. from the documentary that I did find quite strange was. We see you play the audio tapes for his mother, and her reaction is just, she seems to be like really shocked by it, and then suddenly she's offering, is it, did she offer you dessert? 
so uh, yeah, it was uh, uh, apple pie and ice cream yeah just what what did you think when she just suddenly was like anyone for dessert what did that shock you well, final question and one of the things that's really kind of shocked me since the documentary's come out and I don't know what your response is to this but um, since it's come out like Netflix I saw part of a warning to remind viewers that he's a murderer because quite a lot of people have said oh I think he looks quite hot or he's good looking what, yeah. what do you make of that response like obviously I mean I can't understand how people are looking at him in that way it's just the stuff you hear is like I said before, chilling, and what did you make of the the response from some viewers? Well, you know, this is, this is, the company said, said, from the time he was first arrested back in 1975, um, that there, there was a fascination among women, particularly young women, uh, girls even, um, that uh, that is really difficult to explain. I, uh, there's a story, uh, a rumor around that that Bundy's victims all had long brown or dark hair, parted in the middle, and they wore hoop earrings, and that that was his, that was his uh, victim. But these women, these girls, would come to court. They clearly had died in the air, parted it in the middle, and went out bought hoop earrings to, to get his attention. Mm. Um, and, you know, he did with from time to time turn around and give them a smile, and they, it was almost, you know, like the Beatles, right? 
So one of the most shocking parts of both the documentary and my interview with Stephen was hearing that there were women who turned up to support him at his trial because they thought he was cute. Although I didn't know if I should be surprised because Netflix sent out a warning to viewers who were like tweeting, oh yeah, he's so hot, reminding them that Ted was a killer. I find this thing so shocking and I actually find it quite insulting to the victims' families that people would fancy this serial killer Ted. But, you know, after hearing everything that Stephen had to say and seeing the documentary, I actually think one of the most interesting and one of the more harrowing parts of the whole thing was when Ted's mother heard absolutely everything her son had done and then offered the team apple pie. Yeah, Stephen even said he was so surprised by that. I just can't understand why that would be your reaction. Like, okay, I've just heard my son confess to all of these murders. Now let's go out for dessert. Yeah, and like, it must be an absolute bombshell to hear that your son is this monster. I just find it so freaky the way that she could just switch off. And I don't know if it's a credit to her or if it's like a bad thing that she did, that she didn't really face it. I guess maybe that's her coping method. Like, she learned this and was just like, I want to pretend this isn't real. I want to pretend this isn't my son. Like, maybe she just thought, I'm just going to look at something positive and detract from like, this whole negative thing that I've just heard. Yeah, and like Stephen said, you know, she had the capacity to disassociate herself just like Ted was doing. Like, And it's this weird kind of family trait that just, you know, one thing, hearing that your son's a killer, the next, you know, being the killer and being able to disassociate yourself from these horrific crimes. And you have to wonder what she was thinking. I mean, I, I can't even fathom what she was, like, thinking at that point. It's such a... Obviously, she'll have seen the trial and seen him go to jail, but I just think it's obviously a lot, probably a lot for a mother to take in. And as well, my heart sank when Stephen, in the documentary, said that he was going to go and see Ted's mother and see, you know, tell her what he discovered. And I just thought that journey to the house must just be in hell. Absolutely. And, you know, I also had no idea how Stephen could actually talk to Ted on a daily basis. To me, it just seems so weird. Yeah, he said, like, he just... There were every... So often, he just wanted to get up and leave. And I think when you interview someone... I think Ted had agreed to it, and he had to work really hard to get Ted to, like, open up to him. They had to get him to talk in the third person. And I think it's just such a lot of effort to speak to someone who is... And he, like... Ted made him feel really uncomfortable at times. He just didn't want to hear what he had to say. But obviously, he was like, Ted gave him approval to go in and speak to him. And he's like, okay, I feel it. Maybe he felt that he owed it to the victims' families to find out what really happened. And I don't know, I think I would definitely struggle. After even just watching the documentary, I think I would struggle to be in the same room as Ted. Yeah, no, and Stephen said, you know, he's like, you know, I didn't know if I could keep my lunch down. Like, I wouldn't even be thinking about eating when you're around someone like Ted Bundy. He's just a monster, completely a monster. And, um, you know, it is chilling and it's harrowing and... I can't imagine ever doing something like that myself. Like, would you ever, if, you know, you had a duty to the victims' families and stuff, like, could you do it? I don't think I'd particularly want to go and interview a killer, someone like Ted Bundy. It's not top of my list of priorities um, or on my bucket list or anything, but I think, obviously, Stephen was presented with this opportunity. I think... Obviously, it's kind of a good opportunity in the way that he gets to speak to someone that not a lot of people are going to know about. They're not going to know um, the details of his crimes. And he can sort of like 
help the victim's families and I do understand why he did it I just don't think it's something that I would want to do personally and you see like a lot of these things on Netflix like did you ever watch Mind Hunters? No I haven't watched that yet. Yeah so that was really good actually because again you know this it was from a very different point of view you know mm. these were forensic um, scientists and psychologists going to interview killers and in that you know it's really fascinating because they are so horrified by what they're hearing and stuff but they, they manage to do it and they manage not to take it home with them like I find it must be so tricky not to go home and just be crushed completely <laughs> and it's so strange and as well you know Stephen said he lost a lot of weight at the time like can you imagine having that burden on you all the time and also I guess that he's going to interview Ted and there's if you're recording all of this and there's probably stuff that you can't talk like there's stuff that Ted wasn't even going to talk about and I guess there's probably stuff that Stephen maybe doesn't want to talk about um or maybe like not right at that instance I don't feel like it's something you'd rush out of and like call your parents and be like oh my god guess what I just guess who I just interviewed it's not like you're interviewing like a Hollywood actor or something this is a killer who's probably told you some stuff that is probably going to scar you I guess this was a killer who kind of thought he was a bit of a Hollywood star as well the way he like reacted with journalists in the court I just found it so crazy. One of the things I found really shocking is that in the documentary, he got up and proposed to, was it Carol? Oh my God, yeah, what was she thinking? <laughs> and didn't they have a family? Like, yeah. I was really confused. I was like, what is this part of the documentary? Did not expect this coming. And there was this whole idea that Ted was kind of maybe playing up to the media. He wanted the attention, even though he was on death row. Yeah, he was on death row and she got into prison. They made love and, you know, they had a family and I just find it god you have to wonder about the kid like y- you must feel so sorry for the family it's just such a messed up situation and I mean I'm sure they made it work but <laughs> it's not really conventional another thing that I found really chilling in the documentary and obviously Stephen did as well he said there was stuff that and when he spoke to Ted it was chilling um it's just the way he kind of described the murders he was very calm he's very clinical he really like we said dissociated himself he just kind of would be like I just think it was like he was writing a really horrible horrible story and he was like reading out out loud and I just thought one how can he commit these crimes two how can he like dissociate himself and just tell it like it's just a story just mind-blowing yeah, and I, I mean, like, you know, he was constructing a story as if he was the author, like, taking Stephen out of it. Like, this is Ted's story, and he was the author of it. And I think it's, you know, it's probably, I'm no psychologist, but it's probably a trait with serial killers. Like, they're so narcissistic that Ted genuinely believed that this was a story that was worth telling. And I guess, you know, it is to an extent, but I'm listening to a podcast at the moment. It's a great one. It's called um, Monster, the Zodiac Killer. And this... um is an unsolved crime in San Francisco. You know, there's this guy, the Zodiac, and every time he is about to kill someone or kill someone, he sends journalists letters saying like, oh, it's the Zodiac here. Like, if you head here, you'll find a car with a body in it, etc." And he said, oh, um, I expect to see this on the front page news and stuff. And it's, oh my God. So, yeah, it's so creepy and obviously unsolved. So he's somewhere (laughs) but um you know I saw a lot of similarities with it and I think it's like a trend in general these notorious serial killers like Charles Manson and stuff 
they all want fame as such and I do wonder actually it's a big question but does a documentary like this and the film coming out with Zac Efron as well does this kind of give them the fame that they wanted like should we be giving them the fame well we'll never know what Ted thinks because unfortunately (laughs) he isn't with us anymore um but so we can't get his opinion on it but I think what you said before wanting the fame we saw in the documentary was it FBI agents went to talk to them to try and work out how to profile serial killers so in future they can catch them more quickly and I just think like what one agent said Ted asked me a question and I answered it in a way that he really liked so and that he approved of so he let me speak to him like what yeah yeah he was like really honest wasn't he and and he said like oh yeah you're gonna burn or whatever and Ted was like yeah thanks for your honesty I guess it must be so weird like the thought of lying to someone like that because yeah like Ted was a clever guy like there's no denying it he was smart and it was such a waste but um I don't think I could go in and lie to him no definitely not but I think that was a part of the tapes that I found interesting is like everything was quite he knew all the details he knew all the facts and even in the chat with Stephen he said liars have trouble remembering their lies and when he was speaking to Stephen speaking to Ted and he went back over the tapes Ted it doesn't seem like he picked up on anything that suggested Ted was lying to him and I find that so harrowing to think that he just everything was the truth he wasn't exaggerating it that was truly the terrible crimes that he'd committed I mean to be fair like when he did confess um like days from being executed I guess he had no reason to lie then he saw that it comes out in the documentary his truth was his bargaining tool Mm. like he could say like where these victims were who they were etc but I think um yeah I thought that was quite creepy as, as such when you hear him speaking in the third person and he's just telling it like it's a tale like it's you or me telling each other a horror story but this one's a very real one and um yeah I guess why why would he lie in the end I think a really important um thing to pick up on about the documentary is that it doesn't just focus on Ted it does also focus on his victims it speaks to um those who knew the victims it describes where they went missing like it goes into a lot of detail about the victims and it's everyone who like Ted targeted is named um and it kind of takes note of those people who he did go after he they don't just focus on Ted which I'm sure Ted would have loved because as we've already established he did like the attention he loved the media attention um but yeah I think it was just really important that they did include details of the victims yeah and I think it was really interesting as well to get the the FBI the police kind of perspectives about it they I think it's it's really cool to see that they all knew it was Ted like there was never really any doubt that it was him and I thought it was interesting the way that he kind of he dug his own grave you know by doing the prosecution and stuff Mm. that was so so unlike anything that you would ever see him you know standing at, at trial kind of cross-examining witnesses and stuff and it was like why was he doing that like he might have had a chance of you know a better sentence or something if he just listened to someone else but his ego got the better of him I guess 
well, it didn't work out for him in the end. So here on Netflix, we like to offer you lovely listeners a little taste of things you'll want to watch next. It's probably sensible to start with Making a Murderer, aka the one show that made me subscribe to Netflix all those years ago. The documentary follows Stephen Avery and his battle to prove his innocence. Throughout the two existing seasons, various lawyers from across America take on his plight while he sits in prison for a murder he may or may not be guilty of committing. And it's so compelling and it's just like the Ted Bundy tapes. It gives a lot of questions, which is really good because Stephen's current lawyer, Kathleen Zellner, is super active on Twitter, keeping everyone up to date on her latest battles. The case is definitely heating up and we can't wait to see what the result of her efforts in season three. Now, you've probably already heard of Making a Murderer, so here's one true crime documentary you've probably not come across yet. So Wild Wild Country dropped on Netflix last year and it's a series that you probably will want to check out if you enjoyed the Ted Bundy tapes. The show looks at a cult in the Rajneeshi community that was based in Oregon in the late 80s. Some really weird stuff happened as a result of Osho's leadership, including a mass food poisoning attack. The documentary is great because it really takes into account all sides of the cult, good or bad, and lets the viewer make an informed decision. But if you want a wholly immersive story, perhaps one of Netflix's films is the way to go and we definitely recommend the Amanda Knox film. Of course, we all know the story of Amanda Knox and how she was accused and subsequently acquitted of the murder of Meredith Kircher, but the Netflix documentary is quite interesting because it really gets into the depths of the case that you've probably not heard of. These are all very intense documentaries, but what if you wanted something light, HD? Look no further than the wonderful Louis Theroux, our absolute favourite. Who doesn't love Louis? <laughs> Pretty much all of his back catalogue is on Netflix, and believe me, making your way through those hours of footage is time well spent. I'll join you on that one. That's all for this week. Thank you so much to Stephen Michel for joining us and telling us everything about his chilling interviews with Ted Bundy. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and tell your friends about us. Join in with the debate on Twitter at NetflixPod, where we'll be teasing details of our next episode. And vote in our poll. This week we'll be asking which part of the series left you most creeped out. Which part didn't leave you creeped out? (laughs) Exactly. Next week we're delving into the brand new world of the Umbrella Academy and we'll get the lowdown on My Chemical Romance's Gerard Way's superhero show. And we'll be joined by friend of the show Callum Crumlish once again for all of the news and chatter. You don't want to miss this. See you next week. Bye.